0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. The chances of facing down an active shooter at your workplace are still very small, but if it happened, would you know what to do? The state actually has a video laying out options. You'll find a link at cprnews.org. The state gets that advice from a company. Colorado-based rapid response emergency systems. It does trainings in public and private sector workplaces across the country. David Dunda is president, and Justin Baumgartner is the company's critical instant specialist. And just note, this conversation could cover situations and topics that might be unsettling for some listeners. Welcome to the both of you.
1: Thank
2: you.
3: Thank you.
0: There are more public mass shootings in the U.S. than any other country in the world. Between 1966 and 2012, there were 90 mass shootings in the U.S., and that's according to a recent study published by the University of Alabama. It defined mass shootings as having four or more victims and didn't include gang killings or slangs that involved the death of family members. And we'll get into some deeper questions about these statistics in a moment. But first, we've been told since childhood to call 911 and help is going to be on, on its way. But, David, you say our thinking on that must change. Why is that?
2: Yeah, it really needs a change, Nathan. Um what we're looking at is the community uh needs to understand that responding to emergency situations such as active shooters needs to be a joint effort between community members as well as professional responders. And
0: w- how long does it typically take for 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 help to arrive when you call 911 in a
2: situation like this? So so the national average response time is 7 to 15 minutes. And um, we know that a vast majority of these situations are over in less than five minutes or less so you know really community members need to engage and respond accordingly uh, to protect themselves and protect others until professional responders are able to get on scene
0: and, and you're using that word professional responders i've always heard them called you know first responders but Is that something that you're trying to make a distinction now about how we may become something different?
2: We are. We're really – we're looking at – you know, first responders are people that are engaged in the situation immediately. uh, And professional responders are are professional community partners in the community that are police, fire, medical responders. So, yes, a a first responder in our perspective is – An individual who is immediately involved in an emergency situation.
0: So with that in mind, Justin, there are three words that you say could help someone survive an active shooter situation. What are they and why are they so important?
3: Well, you know, Ready Houston came out with a program. Uh, The federal government created this program in in accordance with uh, the Houston Police Department. And they said, hey, we should be able to run, evacuate as fast or get as far away from uh, the Mass violence as possible, right? Create distance, get as far away from that as possible. If that does not work, uh, or if you're unable to evacuate, you need to hide and barricade, make sure that you can prevent that threat from getting to you. Uh, and unfortunately, there are times when you are put into a situation where you have to fight for your life. And that is that third phrase, you know, Fight. Um, and this isn't a linear system of run if that doesn't work hide if that doesn't work fight it's if I can run fantastic or if I am hiding and then there's an opportunity to run hey I'm going to shift that way if I run into a violent encounter and I have no other choice but to engage in a uh, physical altercation I have to fight for my life because there's something uh, that's so much more important to me than this individual stopping my life today uh, there's a fourth term out there that we like to throw out and it's the the, the treat portion. Um, which is really something we haven't looked at for the last 17 years past or post-Columbine. If you have the opportunity to learn and train on how to fix yourself or help a friend, coworker, family fix each other, and by fix I mean do some initial uh, trauma care, initial – Like CPR and things like that? Uh, A little bit beyond that even. It's uh, application of tourniquets stopping massive hemorrhage, massive bleeds. Really scary things to think about, but hey, if you can – Interdict. If you can interact, if you can help stop that bleed and save that life, you're doing so much more. And really, that's how we created the concept of the, the running. Obviously, evacuate, hide if uh, you can't get out, fight, and then make sure that you are trained at least to a point where you can save a life. So run, hide, fight, and treat. Treat. Treat.
0: Coincidentally, CPR's Human Resource Department happened to contract with your company for training at our organization, and I took your course a few weeks ago. I remember learning that in these situations, people see doors that are clearly exits, but they may be marked employees only, and they don't use them. Why is that?
3: Well, we have a significant population that's law-abiding. If I see a sign on the door that says, no weapons allowed, as a law-abiding citizen, I'm going to go and put my firearm I lock it away in my car, potentially, because, hey, I want to abide by the policies and procedures of the organization. Uh, The same thing goes with emergency exits. If you see a sign on the door that says employees only, the first thing you're going to think about is I'm not employed with this organization. I can't evacuate through this area. And unfortunately, that's what's prohibiting uh, some individuals' mindsets from being able to evacuate accordingly to save their own lives or the lives of their family. And we really need to uh, break away from that system that, hey, during these circumstances, it's important to... Get as far away from that threat as possible. You can be an employee for the day; it will be okay. I promise. They're going to uh, they'll make an honorary Apple
0: employee. And what about what about hiding in that sense, where you may be unable to to exit? What are some of the the examples that you would like listeners to to know if they're in an office space when they have to hide?
3: Would you like to? Absolutely. You know, if I have to hide, knows if there's an inability for me to evacuate or to escape this violent encounter. Hiding isn't just closing a door, getting underneath a desk, and waiting for help. But going back to that 911 mentality, if I call 911, I'm going to sit and wait for help. That's ineffective in 2016. If I have to hide in a room, I'm going to put everything I can between that door and that threat that's trying to come after myself or individuals that I'm surrounding. So the concept of just hiding under a desk or the old uh, nuclear attack mentality of getting under your desk because bad things are going to happen – has to go away. We have to be more actively engaged in understanding what our surroundings are prior to an event and what we would be able to utilize to make sure that we can be as safe as possible during these events if it were to ever occur.
0: So like office furniture or or office supplies and things like that?
3: Office furniture, uh, ties, belts, um, cleaning supplies. You'd be amazed how many doors you can uh, barricade utilizing a broomstick. So just understanding where you work, what your workspace looks like, and what you can utilize in that circumstance.
0: And and, and David, I, I want to – this is a, an interesting situation that we find ourselves in, that we have to have this conversation. Your company deals with this every single day. Is this something that is growing, that people and in, in, in companies are wanting to have this type of training today?
2: It is growing, and I think uh, organizations um, are kind of at a uh, – A point where they need to start really recognizing uh, what their roles and responsibilities are responding to these types of events. You know, preparing staff um, for an event ultimately protects the staff members, creates a safe environment and um, allows people to go home at the end of the day.
0: But don't you find it such an odd situation that we are here in having these conversations?
2: Well, yes and no.
3: I mean there was a circumstance prior to uh, having regulatory fire drills and making sure that there's fire code in place where unfortunately people were losing their lives during mass fires in schools and buildings and so on and so forth. Uh, And it was a very scary thing to have to talk to uh, children and uh, adults about saying we have to train on how to evacuate buildings because of a potential fire because this can never happen here. Well, it was. And it was occurring. And unfortunately, uh, that kind of became part of our lives. Now we do fire drills. We do tornado drills. We do uh, all hazard drills because we know that a natural disaster can occur. Unfortunately, 2016, we are in a time where we are seeing uh, a significant more of these violent encounters and we need to have these conversations. And it's not a scary terminology of, hey, I don't believe I want to introduce this to my employees. The vast majority of employees are already thinking about it, thinking, what would I do in this case? How should I respond? And it's amazing to see organizations stepping forward and requesting uh, proactive training to help fulfill that need that's already being requested from the employee base.
0: And your company calls an active shooter event an incident of workplace violence. Why is that?
3: Well... We look at this entire concept of workplace violence, and everyone thinks that being in your workplace is the uh, forty, 50, sixty hours a week right uh, that you're in your workspace doing your work. Unfortunately, what we don't understand is everywhere that you go beyond your forty, 50, sixty hours a week is someone else's workplace. If we're looking at religious facilities, people work there, schools, uh, teachers janitorial staff, administrators, everyone works at these various buildings. We don't look at the locations that we frequent beyond our personal workspace as other workplaces. So you're always in someone's workplace.
0: Like the mall or the movie theater or or a hotel or wherever that may be. Absolutely. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. I'm speaking with David Dunda and Justin Baumgartner of Colorado-based Rapid Response Emergency Systems. Uh, Justin, besides contracts with the state, the other companies and sites you've worked with include the State Capitol, Dick's Sporting Goods Park, Denver's Paramount Theater. How has this field grown as an industry?
3: Well, we kind of changed the mentality of training. It's not just active shooter, active threat training, um, we look at an ecosystem of safety and security. We're looking mm. for the uh, the full spectrum of how can we assist uh, other organizations, other private organizations and public organizations who don't necessarily think about this on a daily basis to have that considerate ecosystem to make sure that their employees feel safe while they're in the workplace. Uh, and that includes doing drills on uh, fire evacuation, doing site vulnerability assessments to see exactly what state they're in today, and how we can assist with progression throughout their term.
0: But but some people suggest that the best course of action here is for people to arm themselves. Is there evidence or studies that, that either of you know of that can show that, that arming oneself in the workplace can help in a situation like this?
3: Well, we go back and forth. Uh, for the most part, we always have to fall back on organizational policy and procedure. Mm-hmm. Because if an organization says that you cannot have a firearm or a A weapon of any kind, I like to say a flamethrower. I'm always looking for the flamethrowers in the workplace. Uh, If you can't have that in the workplace, then that's breaking procedure by even having that in place. And you don't want to lose your job at the end of the day for things that uh, may or may not occur. Um, One of the mindsets that we continuously look at is if you do want to arm yourself with whatever whatever it is, uh, that you have continuous training on whatever you're utilizing – because you don't want to become a victim with something that you have went out and purchased. Say a firearm, for instance. I want to arm myself with a firearm because it's going to protect myself and my family. But I'm going to put it away and at the, uh, at the worst time necessary, that's when I'm going to have to know how to use it. That's highly ineffective. If uh, you want to own a firearm or whatever kind of weapon system there is in place to arm yourself for protection, there has to be a uh, consistent need and want to understand how these systems work how that firearm works and to make sure that you're as proficient as possible if you ever need to actually utilize it.
0: But isn't there a concern that a, quote, good guy with a gun might be mistaken for the bad guy with the gun in a situation by law enforcement?
3: There is always a uh, potential for that. And my previous uh, career path was in law enforcement. I had several years uh, with a few organizations. And time and time again, we had trained with that. We had uh, individuals that looked like civilians. And when we were trained for active shooter, almost every time they either were uh, challenged heavily by law enforcement, they were uh, perceived to be that, uh, that bad guy, I guess. And unfortunately, on several occasions, they had taken simulation rounds, fake rounds, which are uh, meant to show that you can actually feel the pain of <laughs> being shot with. But we see that. On the flip side... What would you do to make sure that your family is protected? So there's always this balance of there's always a possibility for injury. But what price can you put on safety and security?
0: As... We've reported uh, previously mass shootings are up while overall homicides are relatively low. And CNN.com notes that while the U.S. has 5 percent of the world's population, it is 31 percent of all public mass shootings. David, is this the new normal? Are, are you counting on it to remain that way since you're actively involved in in this type of business?
2: I believe it is the new normal. Um, it has been the normal for several years now. And uh, I think uh, – one of the obstacles that we as a society need to um address is you know moving out of the de- denial phase of denying that this you know could happen to me could happen at this location too it 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 could uh, um again back to workplace violence you know if you go to your work every day but do you visit the movie theater do you visit the restaurant do you visit the hospital do you visit a university or school campus, so on and so forth. I mean all of these types of locations unfortunately um, have been exposed to active shooter events.
3: And may I add, um, although it does show within the United States that the homicide rate has uh, decreased, uh, the attempted homicide rate has still increased – The vast majority of these numbers come out of advanced medical care uh, evolution. So the ability to have access to uh, trauma care as quickly as possible has reduced the individuals who potentially could have lost their lives uh, early on.
0: How do you know that this is the best advice to give employees at a workplace? Do law enforcement and emergency responders look at each active suitor incident and say, here are some new best practices?
3: Absolutely. There is an after action report after every event, every event. And, you know, the most recent Orlando shooting, uh, I want to bring it up because we saw a shift in response from the citizens. They were actually engaging in basic trauma care aid. Individuals were being pulled out and uh, there were several phenomenal heroes that stepped forward, everyday citizens that stepped forward and helped stop hemorrhage. That's kind of that shift. We always see something new uh, every event and that's this trend is now if a bad thing does occur such as a mass shooting, not only how can I survive but how can I help others who potentially would not have if uh, the medical intervention did not occur by other civilian members.
0: Thanks to the both of you for joining us.
3: Thank you so much. Thank you.
0: David Dunda is president and CEO of Rapid Response Emergency Systems. Justin Bumgartner is the company's critical incident specialist. Find a video and the words you need to remember that may help you survive an active shooter situation at cprnews.org. Just ahead, the blast of a train horn is meant to keep you safe, but for those living next to the tracks, it's also pretty annoying. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Haffel. Oh The noise from passing trains has been drawing complaints in towns from Castle Rock to Fort Collins. That's since a rule took effect laying out how engineers have to blow their horn when they respond uh, approach to a street crossing. The series of long and short blasts is meant to warn people off the tracks. It does get your attention. But a lot of people want that rule changed. The head of the Federal Railroad Administration visited Fort Collins and Loveland recently. Sarah Feinberg heard from critics who say the noise is more than just annoying.
4: It's tough to uh, do business. You have a train running right through town. Ruins your dinner. Ruins your shopping experience.
0: Monty Whaley reports on transportation for the Denver Post. He told CPR's Mike Lamp that uh, people also complain that trains interrupt their sleep.
4: There are plenty of folks who say that they're trying to settle down at ten, eleven o'clock, and here comes a big old train coming through and blaring its horn.
5: There is a long list of communities that are affected by this. Does each one have the same problems, or are the problems unique to each community?
4: It's pretty much the same problem. Certainly, the communities are obviously different, but any community in Colorado where trains have traditionally gone through their downtown area or close to the downtown area is affected by this.
5: And the communities and the residents and their local officials are asking the Federal Railroad Administration to alter these rules so that the train engineer doesn't have to blow the horn as they roll through town. But it's not as simple as just saying, "Okay, you don't have to blow the horn. Correct. You have to set up a pretty elaborate safety zone so that people who don't hear the train coming won't find themselves on the track when it comes.
4: Correct. And that usually involves putting down crossing arms, putting in lights. Commerce City has put a fairly elaborate quiet zone on one of its main intersections. But unfortunately, those can become very expensive. They run into hundreds of thousands of dollars. And a lot of these communities right now, they don't have that. So
5: does this visit by the head of the Federal Railroad Administration suggest that things are maybe moving in the direction that the communities want them to go?
4: I think so. I, I think probably one of the most fascinating things about this entire issue is that Democrats and Republicans really can't agree on anything. They're at each other's throats constantly, except when it comes to this issue. You have people all coming together and saying, please, let's see if we can work something out. Because whether you're a Democrat or Republican, uh, you're going to get complaints about train noise.
5: Is one solution that they just reroute the trains so they don't go straight through the middle of town?
4: That could be a solution, but that's also, again, extremely expensive.
5: This issue has surfaced now because of the train rule that hasn't always been in place.
4: No, this train rule came in in 2005 specifically to cut the number of uh, deaths and injuries due to people, for whatever reason, wandering onto a train track. And it has. It's been pretty successful. They've cut it by quite a bit.
5: This new rule must have come up as more people are living closer to where the trains go through?
4: Correct. I think it's probably the bulk of the problem, development. A lot of suburbs, a lot of housing developments going out in what used to be rural areas. Yeah. Obviously, we see it in Colorado all over the place.
5: So the head of the Railroad Administration visits Colorado, meets with officials, and hears from members of the public. And then what do you think happens after that?
4: Well, the hope is that she will uh, go back to Washington and uh, get together with some of her experts and see if there could be some sort of solution. Maybe the train operators don't have to adhere to such a strict, maybe one, one nice blast as they come through the town will be enough.
0: Monty Whaley reports on transportation for the Denver Post. He spoke with Mike Lamp. The Federal Railroad Administration is taking public comment on whether to reverse and revise its rules for train horns through July 5th. Up next, walking the Colorado Trail using equipment similar to that from the 1860s. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. You've heard the expression, walk a mile in my shoes. Well, in a few days, our guest will start a 500-mile walk on the Colorado Trail, but he'll be dressed from head to toe in clothes a hiker could have worn 150 years ago. And he'll carry vintage camping gear. Ben Jenkins wants to recreate a time when people relied on Colorado's mountains for everything from their food to their fortunes. Ben, welcome to the program. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. If someone met up with you on the Colorado Trail, uh, what will you look like?
1: Well, I think that's actually one of the most important parts about this trip is actually give people a visualization of uh, what Colorado people would have looked like in the mid-1860s, kind of in its founding, um, kind of the early gold rush years. Um, It's kind of hard to explain without physically showing you, but um, uh, there's a lot of wools. There's a lot of texture um, there's a lot of subdued colors, um, wools and linens and cottons and, and lots of layers. Um, m- even the average man would have been dressed in what we would think would be a fancy suit in today's time uh, with vest and shirts and undershirts, multiple, multiple layers. Um, the biggest thing is just it's – and I think that's what I'm really excited for, for being out in, out in the wilderness like this is everything is so natural. There's no synthetic fibers. There's, It's everything comes from the earth. It's going to – it's –
0: It's an interesting look. And and in front of us here, we actually have shoes that you're going to be wearing on on this trip. They don't look like uh, the typical shoes you'd wear hiking today. Describe their their canvas with some leather. Uh, Describe what we're looking at.
1: Yeah, actually, uh, this is footwear was one of the big things that came to mind when we started talking about doing this trip. Aaron and I, the the gentleman going with me. Um, And so I started doing a lot of research into what would best suit this trip. And what I found is in, in the 1850s, something called a sporting shoe, which the best way to describe it is like an 1850s, 60s version of a Converse shoe, okay. uh, leather-capped toe, leather-capped heel, um, canvas body, um, double half-sole, le- you know, leather sole with a heeled, um, our nailed heel um, They're an interesting shoe, but surprisingly enough, because of the way that they're made, they actually form and conform to your foot um, incredibly quickly, and they're they're actually shockingly comfortable. I've done, on this pair here, I've probably done about 80, 85 miles, and they wear like modern shoes.
0: So wearing all of this wool and, and this, this the full outfits, is it going to be hot? I mean, typically I would hike in shorts and maybe a T-shirt. <laughs> yeah, but... I
1: would normally go with shorts as well. <laughs> uh, it has its ups and downs. Uh, the fabric is not necessarily like what we... I say we, what a lot of people would normally think of as wool. It's not thick, Hmm. heavy gray stuff like you'd imagine. It's actually, a lot of the stuff we're wearing, the wool itself is actually a jean wool or a wool flannel. Uh, And so the wool itself is, that my trousers will be made of, is is much like mud blue jeans where the, Uh, The main fabric that you're seeing is wool, but just like a modern blue jeans, if you turn them up, you see the white cotton warp on the underside. That's exactly how my trousers, the fabric that my trousers are made out of. Um, They're wool on top, which helps uh, wick water and moisture, Um, and the cotton underneath keeps it uh, cool and comfortable.
0: And we're going to have pictures up on our website, cprnews.org, including some of these antique eyeglasses that that uh, that you're going to be wearing.
1: Uh, tell me about those. Um, well, they're original. They're probably more than likely date from the late 1840s or early 1850s. Um, I I can't see, <laughs> and my eyesight keeps getting progressively worse. I thought I would actually might be able to do this trip without glasses just for the fear of breaking them, losing them. Um, but no, uh, I just snagged these. They're, they're pretty easily available with the... Great invention of the internet from Etsy to eBay to specific sites catered towards period eyeglasses. Um, yeah, there there's just small wire, brass wire-framed glasses. Um, I definitely have a kind of transitional time from my modern glasses to these because the lenses are so much smaller. My good field of vision is much, much smaller as well. But yeah, I... I I would have loved to have been able to do this without glasses, but I just it just wasn't going to happen.
0: So you have a modern prescription in, in these yeah, antique exactly, glasses. Yeah, exactly, and, yeah. And so not using contacts because would that then defeat the purpose of being— Well,
1: I actually think if uh, my eyesight and kind of my prescription would have allowed me for contacts, unfortunately it does not based on my stigmatism. I, um, I actually think I may have cheated that a little bit and gone with contacts just for the ease, but um, this will be nice. Again, it's just another piece of uh, the material culture puzzle that people get to take a look at
0: and and much of the gear that you're using is actually antique and 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 you know very typical for the gear they would have carried it it brings to mind the question why are you doing this what is the reason for doing all of this preparing and, and 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 training to do this
1: well i don't think um i don't think there's an easy answer to that at least in my my own mind i don't think there's one singular reason why i've decided to do it i think it's a culmination of quite a few things um i, I wanted to do the colorado trail back in 2014 uh modern And uh, I got prepped for a whole year. I set out, and a couple days in, I hurt my leg and had to pull off the trail. I thought I was going to be able to recover, and I just didn't. So the kind of trail notion kind of faded off into the distance. Um, And then a couple months ago, um, this is after like two years of doing all my hiking, all my backpacking, all my mountaineering and period clothing. um, It just kind of hit me, and it kind of made sense. I reached out to a really good friend of mine, Aaron Class, and said, hey, dude, I have this idea. We want to do something that was going to kind of shake up the living history community, Um, kind of say, hey, look, everybody's talking about being authentic or hardcore or going out and, you know, going head deep into it. And nobody was actually really doing that. It was more of a conceptual thing, but nobody was actually doing it. So Aaron and I sat down and we talked about it. And originally he wasn't sure if he was even going to be able to go. Um, And so I said, uh, I said, well, I'm going to do it anyway. Um, and a couple days later, he sent me a text message. I was on a date with my fiance and uh, he said, dude, I'm just going to do it. And then it was just like, oh, okay, well let's, let's, what what do we even do? Um, but to kind of condense it all down, Mm. I have several passions in life. I love film. I love music. I love hiking and I love history. And this just kind of seemed like one of those once in a lifetime opportunities where I could take every one of those facets and kind of create one big project and kind of just dump all my energy and time into it.
0: So uh, in the 2010s, not the the 1860s, how do you make your living? Is this what you do, uh, reenacting and things like that?
1: Well, yeah, I reproduce, uh, for instance, issues I reproduced um, about. 85% 85% of what I'm using and what Aaron is using on our trip is actually made by me with my own hands, my own sewing machine or my own hand stitching or, or whatever it is. Uh, but, yeah, I reproduce high-quality reproductions for living historians, TV, film, uh, museums, reenactors. Um, yeah, it's, it's kind of an odd thing to do, but it's nice. I get to work from home, and uh, it's, it's definitely been incredibly educational as well, um, getting to research and study uh, the material culture side of the mid-19th century. And
0: and are you going to be filming this? I've read as well. Yeah,
1: yeah. We actually have an amazing uh, group of filmmakers that are going to be coming out with us. We have one guy named Patrick who's going to be following us along the entire time who will always be with us or within range of us. Uh, And then our director, Riley, is going to come out with a small crew uh, several days a week um, for interviews and stuff like that. We're trying to have the film crew kind of be a, a kind of a fly on the wall along the trip to kind of keep the immersive aspect of this trek kind of in place for Aaron and I. Um, But when we started talking about doing it, it was mostly just going to be like, hey, let's make a short video, some videos, put them up on YouTube. And as we started really planning, we realized how incredible of a tool this trip could be for the living history community. And so the film aspect of it kind of took a precedence and kind of came to the forefront.
0: Is there a particular person or, or type of person who who would have been in Colorado's mountains at at the time that you're trying to use as a model for this?
1: Yeah, actually, um, our director, when we first started talking about the filming, he said, you guys really at that point, we were just hiking. We were just going out, which is which is kind of odd because at this time in history, this this trip is, quote unquote, circa 1860. Um, it's kind of set in 1860, uh, early summer. Um, he said, you guys need a reason for walking. You guys can't just be going out because if people are saying, hey, why are there two guys walking in old-timey clothes? So me and Aaron kind of did some research, and we actually found that in 1860 itself, along with 59 going into the late 60s, there were groups of buying parties. Um, these groups pretty much set out to try to locate natives or uh, other people in the area who are producing goods that they could then buy at wholesale and ship back east. And that's, in essence, what Aaron and I are doing. We're heading to the Animas River Valley, which is now Durango, as a small buying party for a company out of St. Louis. Uh,
0: and, and back in the day, people would have hunted for their food. Uh, are you going to carry a gun and hunt for food uh, on the trail?
1: Unfortunately, because of regulations and laws in the back country, we are very limited to what we can do. So we are actually resupplying like a normal through hiker would do that being said we've been very conscious of where we're resupplying uh of the eight places where we are resupplying six of them would have been in existence in 1860 and we try to be really conscious of like every aspect of the trip to make sure that we were as authentic as possible including where we would have bought new food and uh replaced clothing and stuff like that
0: what what about communication like like a cell phone or something in case you get in trouble are you going to you know (laughs) not have that
1: (laughs) right right um because it is the backcountry, there's limited service. That being said, I think our film crew will probably have uh, the ability to reach out in case of emergency. Erin and I will have our cell phones, um, although those will be kept in pack as much as possible. Because uh, as much as for the film aspect, we want to be authentic and we want to show people this experience. Um, even outside of the film, the height comes first for Erin and I, um,
0: and your crowdfunding to pay for this so what happens if that to that money if if you have to quit the trail if you don't complete the trail
1: well that was actually the first time we had the discussion was last week um with Aaron and I had that discussion then Riley and I had that discussion um Fingers crossed we don't have to stop the trail. But uh, just based on the fact that this has never been done before in this manner, there are a lot of things that we really don't know. We don't actually know what's going to happen out there. Uh, most thru-hikers don't. And the fact that we have no nothing modern really kind of hindered us, hinders us a little bit more. Um, uh, Aaron and I both made the agreement that if one of us has to drop out, let's say I get hurt, Aaron's going to keep going. If Aaron gets hurt, I'm going to keep going. Um, if there is something crazy happens if we get let's say we get 100 miles in and we realize wow how did these guys do this we are clearly not prepared Uh, then that's just something unfortunately we'll have to address then we don't you
0: don't know hey don't really know yeah you'll be decked out in your historically accurate gear and clothing what do you say to modern hikers you're going to be passing with their nalgene bottles gps trackers and 21st century hiking boots
1: well well, actually made a joke me and aaron were joking and i said you know this is going to be this historical trip that's actually going to turn out turn out to be we're going to become like modern bandits stealing modern hikers uh, mountain house meals because we're going to be a songwriter but um, I, I'm, I'm actually hoping they talk to us that that is a big thing for us I'm a huge proponent of Colorado history and this part of Colorado history is is typically overlooked people usually start with you know the centennial or, late, or, or later and I'm really hoping that backpackers talk to us because the similarities are incredibly incredibly close
0: Ben, thanks for joining us. Thanks. Ben Jenkins lives in Erie, Colorado, north of Denver. He and Aaron Klass are scheduled to start hiking the Colorado Trail July 6th. Just ahead, a new film screening this week highlights Colorado women in politics. The state has the highest percentage of women in its legislature. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Colorado led the nation in electing women all the way back in 1894, when three women became state representatives. The tradition continues. Colorado today has the highest percentage of women women serving in its state legislature. Yet it hasn't elected a woman to be U.S. senator or governor. There's a new film about this called "Strong Sisters: Elected Women in Colorado." Colorado Public Television airs it Wednesday night. Laura Hepner of Centennial and former Greenwood Village City Council member Meg Frolik produced the film. They spoke with my
6: colleague Ryan Warner earlier this year. Ladies, welcome to the program.
7: Thank you, Ryan. Thank you for having us.
6: So, Laura, you're a former director of uh, the Colorado. Legislative Women's Caucus. It's a bipartisan group made up of the women in the Colorado General Assembly. And part of your work involved writing biographies of female lawmakers throughout the state's history. What about that research was so fascinating that you and Meg thought, gosh, this should be a film?
7: You know, it's interesting enough that Colorado has this amazing history where we were the first state where men voted to give women the right to vote on that issue and that issue alone in 1893. And then one year later, We elected the first three women to serve in any legislative body in the world, actually. That's interesting enough. But when you look at the actual women who have served over time, and I started writing up these little biographies, they have such interesting stories. And I wanted people in Colorado to know some of those stories the way that they know about Molly Brown or Baby Doe Tabor. These are women who were accomplished in and of their own right and made a big difference in our state.
6: Whose story were you most burning to tell?
7: Oh well, <laughs> there's a story about Agnes Riddle who served in the 19 teens, who uh, was the only woman serving in the state house when one of the men carried a bill to create a red light district in Colorado, and it would have set a curfew for the women who were in that area that they had to stay in that area overnight. And she stood up and said to the men, "I'm fine with that as long as the men who there who are there have to stay there all night as well." And which one of you? wouldn't have a little problem with that. And It takes, as it, it takes two
6: to tango. <laughs> yes.
7: And so the the bill failed. Um, and it was just a wonderful example of how women make a difference. And that story is sort of buried in some suffragette newspapers from the era. Um, and those are the kind of stories I wanted to go looking for.
6: Uh, Meg, Laura alluded to this, but we, we have to talk about women getting the vote before we can talk about women uh, serving in legislative bodies. And Wyoming was the first to give women women the, the right to vote, but that was done by a bill. Colorado did it popularly, right? Right. And that's sort of what we talk about in the
8: film is the perfect set of circumstances that came together to make that happen, um, both from economic factors and social justice factors. And um, a lot of that we discovered sort of in the process. Um, we had sort of gone in with this preconception of Western women as cowgirls and independent, feisty people. But it doesn't, it doesn't apply equally. So that's true in Wyoming, and that's true in Utah. But yet they each had their own path towards suffrage. So Wyoming wanted women to have the vote so that they had enough population to qualify as a
6: state. Oh, there were ulterior motives, you're saying?
8: Yes. And Utah has a different story in which it was an effort to stave off the anti-polygamy people. So, Colorado's story is interesting and different. And
6: and how, what drove it in Colorado?
8: Well, one of the interesting things that we really began to focus on is the economic downturn in 1893, the silver crisis, and the rise of the populist movement. And the populist party had as part of its platform women's
6: suffrage. And that was an appealing message when the economy was in the dumps.
8: Well, the women in Colorado had a long history of social justice and helping folks who were not as well off and forming communities in these mining areas. And so when the economic downturn put all these guys out of work, it was women going out with both blankets and soup and then a little pamphlet that said, hey, give
7: us the right to vote and uh, you'll see more of this.
6: (laughs) The image of a broom was a strong image in this campaign, wasn't it, Laura?
7: Yes, they used the broom as a symbol of cleaning up government. And um, we've seen that Through history, this idea that women will help to clean up government, that you can trust women more. Um, That's not something that we're saying. That's something that you see in the historical research, is that there's this sense that you can trust women in government.
6: What can you tell us about those first three women who were elected to the state legislature the following year? So women get the vote in 93, and then in 94, they are elected. All three Republican, correct?
7: Right. All three were Republican, which is interesting, because the populists um, had a real presence At the same time, in the following election, two years later, um, populists were elected. Um, But the first three were Republican women, two from Arapahoe County, or really Denver at the time, and one from Pueblo. Those three had not been terribly involved in the suffrage movement. Mm. Um, But what was interesting was that the parties at the time figured out – the women in those parties at the time figured out that if they ran women in some districts – eventually a woman would get elected if you only nominated women from your party. And so that's what happened in these cases.
6: Uh, I understand that women made changes to the Capitol physically, as well as leaving their footprint legislatively. Uh, there wasn't a ladies' restroom in the House. They had to go across the rotunda to get to a bathroom. Um, here is former State Representative Wilma Webb, She's talking about how Arie Taylor, the first African-American woman to serve in the state legislature, changed
5: this. And
7: they would miss votes. And so one day, uh, Arie, and this was before my time, but she tracked and counted every step that she had to make. And because of her, uh, women could just have something very close to them and still be able to, to manage to get their votes recorded.
6: Meg, the film highlights another example of how female lawmakers worked to make the Capitol accommodating for men and women, and that has to do with language, in particular pronouns. Tell me about that.
8: Well, that was a funny um, story that Dorothy Rupert told um, about wanting to change the language to be gender neutral. And this was just perceived as absolutely revolutionary and hugely costly which she found to be absurd. But, you know, Pat Schroeder also experienced a lot of um, – there's a sort of a theme of bathrooms <laughs> in the film. And in women's experience, I, I imagine across boardrooms and corporate life, um, she uh, had had didn't have access to the men's cloakroom at, at the Capitol, which was a place of where powerful meetings took place.
6: Let me say, Pat Schroeder uh, elected to Congress from Colorado, the first woman to be elected from Colorado to Congress. We're discussing how female politicians first broke through in Colorado back in 1894. Today, the state has the highest percentage in the nation of women serving in its state legislature. A new documentary called Strong Sisters, Elected Women in Colorado, shares the stories of some of these women and we're joined by filmmakers Laura Hepner and Meg Froelich. Uh, back to uh, Pat Schroeder, so the first woman elected to Congress from Colorado. She talks about getting on the Armed Services Committee as its first female member. The chairman tried to keep her out of the committee, but was overruled. And in your film, Schroeder describes how the chairman reacted when she showed up for the first committee meeting with Ron Dellums of Oakland, California. He was the first African American on that committee.
7: And he just blew up and he said, Okay, the one piece of power I still have is determining how many chairs there are at the at the Dais, and you two are only worth half of our regular members, so you two get one chair. And we decided we're going in with great dignity. We're going to sit down and we'll just share the chair. Now, Barney Frank used to always introduce me, saying that was the only half assed thing I did.
6: The only half assed thing she did. And she referenced their former Massachusetts Congressman Barney Frank, who, by the way, came out of the closet while he was in office. And so while sexism was something that these women often faced, it it occurs to me that they had male champions along the way as well. Did that part of the story come out, Laura?
7: Definitely. Uh, Dottie Wom says in the film, uh, she has to point out that I think it was uh, Senate President Strickland had all women uh, as heads of committees when he was there at one point, which was um, significant. I think that was in the 1980s or 90s. There, there have been men who have been allies, who have uh, worked with, collaborated with women on various issues over time.
6: As we said, Colorado is number one in the nation for female representation in the state legislature. It's about 42 percent. Did you get some sense of why that is
8: well, we really feel it builds on the tradition that we've established. So we, because we've had more women, we have more women. The other thing is that we have such a large representation in our suburban corridor and I think both parties have discovered that women do well in suburbia. So if you want to win that election, it's often a winning strategy to put forward a woman candidate.
6: You say both parties. And, you know, we said before the break that the first three women elected to the state legislature were Republicans and GOP women were very successful for a long time. But in the film, you say that that has been on the decline. What is going on, Laura?
7: Well, we heard a lot of stories from Republican women about what has happened over the past 20, 30 years. Um, And we've seen a real shift from the numbers being heavily Republican women um, in both the House and the Senate, more so the House, um, uh, to being heavily Democratic women lately. Um, And it's part of the reason we wanted to tell this story is um, nowadays I think uh, younger generations might think that women in office equates to Democratic women in office, and that was not true um, until about 1990s. Um, Why is that? Well, the film talks about that. Uh, The Republican women who we interviewed talk about uh, a a very hard right, uh, Christian conservative influence in Colorado politics um, at the State House and Senate level that sort of drove them out during primaries um, and that these women were primaried um, by a, a more right-wing element I guess th- they would say
6: and w- how does that connect to them being women in other words
7: I uh, well uh, what what they say is that they were more moderate on issues so they are Republicans but they might be moderate more moderate on an issue like uh, reproductive rights or gay rights um, as we've seen in the last few years and um, that some elements of the Republican Party aren't happy with that. And so they would run a candidate against them in a primary.
6: This is what Republican women told you
7: in in the making of this
6: film. You know, we mentioned that there hasn't been a female U.S. senator from Colorado, a female governor, a female mayor of Denver. Um, I guess, first of all, how often do women run for those posts? That's the first question to ask. And then I suppose the second question is, why then aren't they elected?
8: Well, we've had women run for these offices, and we tried to interview as many of them as we could. Almost to a person, I would say that um, they ran into problems with raising money, and often it was a male opponent who was better funded that was able to knock them out uh, or sometimes talk them out of running. So we have a lot of instances of that, and that's about access to power and the institutional barriers that still remain at that higher level.
7: The other thing that we heard um, along the way is uh, women who told us that they waited until their children were in high school or out of high school before running for office. And so if you have a group of people who wait for 15, 20 years before they even begin a political career, even begin to run for lower-level offices, they're just not going to have as much time to access Congress or the Senate or the governorship. Um, And so – We think that is shifting, and we talk about that in the film, that more women with younger children are willing to run for office and find a way to make that work. Uh, But that's one of the things we heard. The other thing that we heard is uh, in terms of going to Washington, D.C., there were some women who said – I moved to Colorado. To live in Colorado. Why would I want to uh, go all the way to Washington D.C. Now that would apply to men, to men as, as well. well, right? Exactly. Um, and I, but I can definitely relate to that. Um, and uh, I thought that was an interesting thing to hear that we did not expect.
6: Do you think that we'll see a uh, a female gubernatorial candidate and perhaps governor soon? I mean, there's there's talk of the former Colorado State Treasurer, potential candidate Carrie Kennedy.
8: Oh, we absolutely feel so. And so do the women in the film. It's coming. It's coming.
6: Very briefly, Meg, you're actually running for Colorado State House as a Democrat. Uh, But you took this film on much sooner than uh, you thought you'd get involved in political office in just the last 10 or so seconds. Was this related? In other words, as you dug into the history, did you become motivated to run?
8: Well, we certainly hope that people watching the film are motivated to to run. And we certainly feel that women across the political spectrum made a difference. And I've long wanted to make that difference. And so I, I would say it lit a fire under me. <laughs> yeah.
6: well, it's, it's been nice to speak with both of you. Thanks so much.
0: Laura Hepner and Meg Frolik produced the film Strong Sisters, Elected Women in Colorado. They spoke about it with CPR's Ryan Warner earlier this year. You can see the film Wednesday night on Colorado Public Television. And that's our show for this Monday. Thanks to our audio engineer, Michael Hughes, and my director, Stephanie Wolf. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Have a great day.